So sincere was good. And when applied to our love for others, it means that sincere love is genuine, it's unfeigned, it's without hypocrisy. And we're encouraged throughout the Scriptures to that kind of love. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he writes, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Okay, there's that he's talking about genuine, unfeigned love there. First John 3.18. 1 John 3.18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth, or sincerely. You know, more people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. And more people have been driven from the church by the hardness and ugliness of so-called Christianity than by all the doubts in the world. So it's pretty important for us to love sincerely, isn't it? In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love. You know, the guests that come to church may not be able to explain it or define it, but they know when it is there and when it is not. And I'm talking about genuine, sincere love. A man will get up, dress, pass 50 other churches and drive all the way across town if he knows that a warm experience awaits him with love and true fellowship in the house of God. For many, the love they receive in the church is the only love they will receive all week long. Um, I was talking to, a, 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 well, actually the pastor, the Nazarene pastor from, I guess, is it Loveland First Church? Hope Springs is the other one. There's two there. But Brian Smith from Loveland Nazarene Church, they're meeting in a school right now because they're going to be building. Anyway, you know, I was, uh, we're wrestling with a number of things in our culture, and one of these things we're wrestling with is the, the sexual identity issue. And he said, I think it was called Red Rocks Church in Denver. He said, I just saw a really good sermon by the pastor there. Uh, he was addressing the issue of homosexuality. He said, you ought to give it a listen. So I did. I looked it up. I listened to it. And kind of prefacing his message, he said, you know, we have some people in our congregation of that orientation. I know who they are. I called them into my office to tell them what I would be preaching on. And I also told them what, from Scripture, our point of view is. And they said, we disagree with you, but we'll keep coming to this church because we know we are loved. Pretty powerful stuff. So verse 9, the beginning of this passage, love must, says love must be sincere. It lacks hypocrisy. When we share the love of Jesus, we're not putting on an act. 
We're not putting on a mask that hides our real feelings or motives. If we're upset with somebody, for example, true love doesn't just smile and say, well, everything's fine. We deal with the problem genuinely, gently, and honestly. We speak the truth with love. Sincere love is openly noticeable. If you love sincerely, people see it. And it's equally given to all. And I know that's not all that's not an easy thing to do, but folks, that's where the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives comes into play. This love, this God kind of love, is to be shown without prejudice of any kind and without pretense. You know, all too often people try to act as though they really care and have love for another, but it's often accompanied with regret for having to do what they have to do to show love. I wish I didn't have to do this to show love. Or with an expectancy of, well, I'll get something in return. Or with a reluctance because it doesn't really come from the heart. The question is, if we try to put on an act and our heart isn't really in it, does that constitute love? I realize that we're all human, and again, that it's not always easy to show sincere love in every situation, so we must be on guard against hypocrisy and seek the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal the love of God in all that we do, especially in our interactions with other people. So, Paul says, here's what sincere love is characterized by. First of all, it's characterized by consistency. Verse 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Consistency. Living or acting conformably to one's own belief, professions, or character. Don't we as Christians say we love good or we should love good and we should hate evil? Let's not confuse that with people. We hate evil, not people. Amen? Sometimes that gets all lumped together, doesn't it? We hate what is evil. We cling to what is good. Two cars were waiting at a stoplight. The light turns green, but the man in front, the first in line, doesn't notice. Um, He's on his phone. That bugs me, too. But I'm not a horn hunter. So a woman in the car behind him is watching traffic pass around them. People are going around now. The woman begins pounding on her steering wheel and yelling at the man to move, and he doesn't move. He's busy on his phone. And she's going ballistic inside her car. She's ranting and raving at the man, counting on the spinning wheel and dash. The light turns yellow. The woman begins to blow the car horn and screams and curses at the man. And he finally noticing the motion, looks up, sees the yellow light, blasts through the intersection just as the light turns red. 
Now, in my experience, the person behind would go through on red anyway, but she didn't. So now she's beside herself. She's screaming in frustration because she's missed the chance to get through the intersection. And she's still in mid-rant when she hears a tap on her window and looks up in the barrel of a gun held by a very serious-looking police officer. The policeman tells her to shut off her car while keeping both hands in sight. She complies, speechless at, at what is happening. After she shuts off the engine, the policeman orders her to exit her car with her hands up. She gets out of the car, orders her to turn and place her hands on her car. She turns, places her hand on the car roof. She's quickly cuffed and hustled. She's too bewildered by the chain, chain of events to ask any questions and is driven to the police station where she is fingerprinted, photographed, searched, booked, and placed in a cell. After a couple of hours, a police officer approaches the cell, opens the door for her. She is escorted back to the booking desk where the original officer is waiting with her personal effects. He hands her the bag containing the things and says, I'm really sorry for this mistake, but you see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, screaming and yelling, cussing the blue streak at the guy in front of you. Then I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder, the What Would Jesus Do and Follow Me to Sunny School bumper stickers, and the chrome-plated fish emblem on the trunk, so naturally I assumed that you had stolen the car. Consistency. Hate what is evil cling to what is good. In some versions, that word hate is the word abhor. That's a really strong word. It means to hate with intense feeling, to loathe, to look upon with horror. Hate what is evil. Is that our attitude toward evil? You know, there's this temptation sometimes to almost want to embrace it. And why should we hate evil? Because it is destructive. Sin is evil. Evil is sin. It is destructive. It kills. And folks, it impacts. Sin is Evil is never contained. It's never this... You know, um, we talk about, you know, in a, a nuclear reactor, the, the, the radioactivity is contained. Sin is not like that. It has a ripple effect. It impacts others. It's destructive. Psalm 97.10 says, Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for He guards the lives of His faithful and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. The prophet Amos, in chapter 5, verse 15, said, Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. I think there were some things going on at that time that may be uh, significant of what we see going on in our own country at this time. 
Listen, folks, we're talking about our Christian conduct, how we have to live as Christians. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I believe God put these words in the order He did for the hate what is evil, cling to what is good. It's impossible to cling to what is good if you don't know what is evil. How can you hate what is evil if you're not sure what evil is? And we live in a time when that picture is Remember the prophet who said, good will be called evil, evil will be called good. That's exactly where we are. And so if you want to know what's what, here it is. It's laid out pretty clearly in here. Now I know that um, what God says in here has been taken at times and twisted around and you know made to sound different than what the Scripture says. Well, it doesn't really mean that and you know, that sort of thing. But folks, if we want to keep things straight, if we want to hate evil and cling to good and know what evil is and know what good is, it's laid out for us in the Scripture. And the problem is, in our, in our postmodern society, well, we have a tendency to reject the very idea that there is absolute truth. Right? We see it. I don't, I've always wondered how you figure that out. How do you figure that out? How do you figure out what's good and what's not good, or what's evil, but tomorrow is changing? Or in this situation, it changes. How do you figure that out? And yet, we live in a world that that's the attitude. Um, well, in this situation, it's good, but in this situation, it's not good, and evil isn't bad. In this situation, it's okay. That sounds really confusing to me. See, our, our society tends to measure good by what feels good. Whatever works for you. Whatever makes you feel better about your life, whether it's true or not. James Montgomery Boyce said this, If we love as God loves, and if we, and, and we must if we are Christians, then there will be things for us to hate, just as there will also be things we must love. We will hate the violence done to people, whether because of name, nationalism, ethnic cleansing, racial or religious pride, war, keeping the peace, even necessity. But we will love the humble and those who work for peace, and yes, even those who are guilty of the violence, because we will want to turn them from their ways. We will hate lying, especially by those who are in important positions. CEOs and other heads of corporations, political figures, presidents, and even ministers. We will hate what their lies do to others, yet we will love the truth, and we will at the same time also love those who are lying. For we will see them as people who need the Savior. Love hates evil, but love also clings like glue what is good. So consistency, a sign of sincere love. And then he goes on, verse 10. Be devoted to one another 
in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves. Consideration. The next sign of sincere love is consideration. We're considerate of one another, thoughtful of the rights and feelings of others. We all know that there are times when that affection between people, even in the church, is not what it is. Because of the, of the fact that Jesus said that all men would know that we are disciples by the way we will love one another, when love isn't shown, it is a glaring problem and, the, and one that the world will keep in on very quickly. If we're not loving one another, the world hates. And boy, have we, and I don't mean us necessarily, but we as the church done a lot to shoot ourselves in the foot at times. Amen? You hear about some of the crazy things that happen in churches and the disagreements that arise over really what should be insignificant stuff. And churches split over that. And people then say, I don't want any, I can get that without going to church, right? We must be considerate of one another. So just so there's no misunderstanding of this verse, here's what Paul's saying. We're to think of one another and treat one another as though we are children of the same family with godly love and a constant willingness to show mercy and grace and forgiveness in every situation. We're to cherish other people as though they are a newborn baby and the most loved member of the family. After all, we are all children of one Father, born of one blood through Jesus Christ. And we're not perfect, and I think we know that. And if you are thinking you're perfect, you're wrong. And though we may have this kind of love for one another, this considerate, sincere kind of love, there's always the chance, as in families, that a little sibling rivalry will arise. Even among people in the church. That's where we have to be careful because it's that point that pride is usually entering into the picture. We begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. That's why Paul also says we're to honor one another above ourselves. And what exactly does that mean? Well, to honor someone is to place high value on them just for who they are. We're to esteem them highly and treat them with utmost dignity. And remember that they are precious in the eyes of the Lord and have been bought with a price that is far more valuable than money, just as we have been bought with a price. They are chosen and called by God, and we have no right to dishonor them. Honor one another above yourselves. That means a willingness to, to humble yourself to whatever degree necessary 
to maintain a right relationship. Did you hear that? Humble yourself to whatever degree necessary to maintain a right relationship. It means that we don't insist on having our own way or we don't have the need to be right all the time. It's a willingness to admit that I was wrong and you were right and I'm sorry. And above yourselves, honoring one another above yourselves encourages us to recognize the, the importance and value of others and keep our own thoughts and words under control and allow God to be God in leading them and us in the right way. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul writes, Now about brotherly love, you do not need to write for you yourselves have been taught by God to love. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing out of self-esteem or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others better than yourself. Pilate is Jewish, so Pilate is Pilate. It is the first time they have flown together, and it was obvious by the silence that they weren't particularly After 30 minutes, the captain finally spoke. He said, I don't like Chinese. The co pilot replied, No, like Chinese, why that? The pilot said, You guys bombed Pearl Harbor. That's why I don't like Chinese. The co-pilot said, no, no, Chinese not bombed Pearl Harbor. That Japanese, not Chinese. The pilot answered, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, it doesn't matter, they're all alike. Another 30 minutes of silence. Finally, the co-pilot said, no like Jews. The pilot replied, why not? Why don't you like Jews? Jews think the Titanic. The pilot tried to correct him. No, no, the Jews didn't see the Titanic. It was an iceberg. Iceberg, Goldberg, Rosenberg, no matter, all the same. What did he consider? That's what sincere love does. The third thing here that's indicative of sincere love is commitment. Verses 11 and 12, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Commitment, an agreement or pledge to do something. In other words, don't be lazy. Don't be slothful. Fervor. Keep your spiritual fervor. It's a word that means to be hot. To, be, to boil, to set a flame. This is what Paul's addressing in his instructions on how to live in a manner that reflects Jesus' nature to the world and in the church. Don't lose your spiritual fervor. We should live as though we truly have a purpose for living. Do we truly have a purpose for living? You know, that's part of... You talk about, uh, you, you may have seen the, the st- statistics on the suicide rate in our country. 
It's outlandish. You know what a lot of that goes back to? People don't have a purpose for living. Listen, we look at some of these people who have taken their lives and it looks like, wow, what an exciting life. What a grand and glorious thing to be doing. And yet, their lives are empty. And, And if there's no purpose in your life, why bother hanging around? And so, they don't. We should live as though we truly have a purpose for living. And there should be some enthusiasm in the service we offer to God and others. Yeah. Listen. In attitude, we can be like the sloth. Remember, said the sloth. Ice age, said the sloth. Or we can be like the roadrunner. Let there be some fervency in your actions. We, can, we serve the greatest cause in the world. And we're contending with someone who's opposed to that cause. The Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion. You had better be moving because you want to, don't want to be caught by the lion. I think my chances of getting away from the lion are better as a roadrunner than the sloth. Folks, we know that Jesus is coming back again. We know that, right? We don't know when that will happen, but it's looking more and more like it could be very soon. So our attitude should be that there's no time to waste. There should be an urgency. We need to keep our fervor and zeal if we are going to accomplish the mission God has given us. To share the love of Jesus with people who've never experienced the love of Jesus. Two buzzards were sitting beside a runway at the Air Force base out west, and one of the buzzards said to the other, Why do we call them buzzards? I don't know. And he said, Man, I'm tired. I've been hanging out on a dead limb all day, and it's made me plumb lazy. The other buzzard looked at him and said, Yeah, me too. I just couldn't make another flap of my my wings. That's why I'm just sitting here too. At that moment, a jet fighter came screaming down the runway with full afterburners on, shooting fire out the back of the engines as it raced off into the sky on its mission. The pressure changes in the air as it blew by, as it passed by, blew the feathers off the buzzards, and they went rolling on the ground, finally coming to their senses. One buzzard said to the other, Man, that bird was really moving. I wish I had that kind of energy. The second buzzard looked over at the first buzzard and said, Well, I bet I could move that fast too if my tail feathers were on fire. (laughs) We may not need fire in our tail feathers, but we need fire in our hearts. One of the prophets said that he felt like he had fire shut up in his bones. It is the fire of fervor that raises our evangelistic temperature and motivates us with the boldness and courage we need to invite people to church, to tell them about Jesus, and gladly render service in ministry. We need some fervency in our spirits, something to put a real fire in us 
to do all that we can for God. We need that. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Romans 5.2 Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope, in the hope of the glory of God. Are we a rejoicing people? Are we joyful in hope? Do we have hope? Thank you. I was concerned there for a second. Let's move on to the next thing because we don't have hope. The opposite of being joyful in hope is to be miserable without hope. And to think the worst of every situation. Joyful in hope. The the Word tells us that for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. He knew there was something beyond the cross, didn't He? We know that there's something beyond whatever we're having to endure in this life. We have hope. And we're to be joyful in that. We have. Remember, I just talked about the suicide rate. Listen, folks. People have no hope. This is it. There's no purpose. There's nothing beyond this life. The end is the end. Why bother? We're joyful in hope. It's a, we have an incredible forever future in Jesus Christ. You know, I, I've looked often at what Paul endured in his life. Have you thought about it? I mean, he was beaten, shipwrecked, snake bit, Imprisoned, rejected, chased, hungry, thirsty, cold, hot. And there's a place where he calls that his light and momentary troubles. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I did, Sally. I kind of laughed when I thought, what a perspective. The only way you can have that perspective is, is if you have a hope an eternal view, hope beyond what this life brings. There's something better and grand and glorious and eternal that awaits me out there. Yeah, thank you, Lord. We have, we're to be joyful in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We're to be patient in affliction. I'm not good at that. Hebrews 10.36 Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that He has promised. That kind of goes back to the joyful hope, doesn't it? But we need to be patient in affliction. Patient is connected to hope. Patience basically is a variation on the theme of delayed gratification. We endure now Because we believe good times are invariably ahead, if not in this life, then in the next. So we're joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and we're faithful in prayer. We talked about that a little this morning. Paul said he 
prayed constantly for the Thessalonians, were faithful in prayer. Then Jesus, Luke 18.1, Luke 18.1, Then Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. I told my Sunday school class this morning that um, when we were pastoring in, in, uh, on the West Coast, I invited my former district superintendent to come and do a series of revival services. And I was walking down the street with him to lunch, and he was mumbling. And I got to listening, and he was praying. He was, I mean, he wasn't in conversation with me, so he's in conversation with God. Faithful in prayer. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Ephesians 6.18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. Well, it sounds like we're supposed to pray a lot. I'm going to tell something I probably shouldn't tell. I got some feedback. I don't even know how we got it. Julie got this feedback. Somebody complained that my prayers were too long. In morning worship service, not here. Somebody else complained because we took time to pray before our board meeting. You know why I did that? Because I had this unsettled feeling that a lot of these people didn't do much praying otherwise. Maybe that's... I don't know. Enough said. Faithful in prayer. Faithfulness is simply faith put into action for the long term. If faith is a sprint, then faithfulness is a marathon. Be faithful in prayer. Keep on praying. Folks, do we believe that prayer works? Then we should be doing it. I'm going to share this. Um, uh, we're just, we can fly on Hang on to your seat here. I shared this devotional at men's breakfast this past Tuesday. It's called God Hear Me Now on Jefferson. There's only this the author, this is from John Ortberg. He writes, There's only one play I can think of in football with an overtly religious name. You probably all know what it is. He's, he talks about a game where he saw it and it happened and, you know, there was a Hail Mary pass and the ball bounced around and Sagan and his team caught it and the last second they won the game. A Hail Mary pass. The rationale is that a pass thrown under such desperate circumstances could only be completed with the help of divine intervention. You know, it's like... A pass and a prayer, kind of like that thing. The phrase comes, of course, from the Catholic prayer based on the angel's greeting to Mary, recorded in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, Hail Mary, full of grace. I believe, he says, Hail Mary play is brought in 
for the last play of the game because prayer is something we generally associate with desperation. We're desperate, now we're going to pray. Hail Mary, clean that thing up and hope your guy comes down. The idea behind this terminology is that for the majority of the game, I can rely on my own resources. I will depend on my game plan, on my personnel. However, at the moment of crisis and desperation, when I've run out of time and opportunity, when human cleverness and moral strength have failed me, and when all other options are gone, that's the time to throw up a prayer. And we're all laughing because we've all done that. Desperate people pray. They pray without thinking about it. They pray even if they're not sure who they're praying to or if anyone out there is listening at all. When we reach the limit of our resources, we pray instinctively, reflexively, like the way a man like lacking oxygen, gas, or breath, and the way a man who is falling reaches out for something to grab a hold of. It's not bad to pray in the time of crisis. One of God's most amazing attributes is that He is humble enough to accept people when they turn to Him sheer desperation, even when they've been ignoring Him for years. Desperation prayers have been the beginning of spiritual life for many people. But by themselves, such prayers are not sufficient to sustain spiritual life. Many of us fall into a pattern where the only times we pray are the times when we're prompted by crisis or pain. The rest of the time we rely on our own Let me put it this way. I've got a problem. God, show up and help me! The rest of the time on prayer leads overwhelmingly to one conclusion. Prayer changes things, and I would add, when we are faithful or consistent. Prayer changes things when we're faithful or consistent. The hallmark of Christianity is that we are the only people on the planet of Earth, planet Earth who have a true hope for a better tomorrow. A true hope for a better tomorrow. Because we have hope, that hope of eternal life in heaven and of a blessed life in this world, we should always be glad, happy, and rejoicing in the Lord. We are to persevere in tribulation, having faith unfailing while we patiently wait for the coming of the Lord to take us to our eternal home. That kind of sums up. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. We're to be faithful in performing our duties, fulfilling our calling, and walking in the path that God has set before us always in an attitude of prayer, talking to the Lord about everything and everyone around us. Constant, intimate communication 
And a close relationship with Jesus is a part of it. And then verse 13. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. An act or instance of sharing. Communion. That's the word, communion. Communion, we think of it as what we do when we remember Jesus' death on the cross. But communion means we have uh, the song, we have blessed sweet communion with one another. Okay? It's an act or instance of sharing. We share with one another. James 2, 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Share with God's people who are in need. Paul says that being busy for God also means that we should be ever vigilant about seeing the needs that exist around us, especially in the body of Christ. Because this is our first obligation right here. This is our first obligation right here to one another. We should do what we can, whenever we can, to help anyone we can to try and give them what is needed. And that's, that's a bit of a challenge sometimes, to know what is needed. It's, it's a job I don't always enjoy. Because I feel like I'm a, a, a steward responsible for those things. You give it. I'm supposed to distribute it according to need. God help me. You can pray that prayer. God help Pastor Sid. And folks, the need can be both physical and spiritual. And we're to be in prayer for one another, always praying and providing as much as we can to assist And help one another in the body of Christ and then beyond that. And of course, we're to be kind and hospitable, always welcoming one another with open arms and ready to be a friend to those who need a friend. You know, they talk about one of the main reasons people come to church is because they're looking for relationship. And and I think our... um, our fascination with technology has not done a lot to really build relationship. And so people, instead of, you know, it's supposed to enhance all this, but I think it's had a tendency to isolate us. People come looking for relationship. So we need to be a friend to those who need a friend. Christians should always have a caring and compassionate spirit. 1 Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And just let me, let me close with this idea really quick. Um, our daughter was telling us about a book she read about a woman who was in charge of gender studies at Syracuse University. She was writing a book that was going to be critical of the Christian point of view. So she sent letters to pastors asking them to respond, you know. And she got one from a pastor who did not respond. He just asked her a series of questions. She wadded it up and threw it in the trash. But then she went back, unfolded it, and read it again. And she felt compelled to call this pastor up. And he invited her to his home. Hospitality. 
and he loved on her. And he didn't shake his finger in her face. He asked her more questions. He made her think about things. She's a pastor's wife now. She's no longer in charge of gender studies at Syracuse University. She said, fellowship is what happens when we invite somebody else from the church over. Hospitality is when we invite somebody over that's a stranger who doesn't think like we do. That pastor was willing to show hospitality. We need to be willing to show hospitality too. We're to love one another in the body of Christ. That's essential. But folks, Jesus has called us to love beyond this circle of friends, hasn't he? And to show hospitality because there are people out there who are literally dying to experience that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Paul's talking here about what it means to love sincerely, genuinely, in an unfeigned way. 